Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We are your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. How are you doing? I'm tired. <laughs> pretty tired yeah i mean you know now you know instead of our our engineer gives us a lot of shit about us how we talk on the about the weather at the beginning <laughs> but it's because we have so little to talk about oh you know, yeah we were Clearly. in war for so long but now we have a new thing julia's tired because of a baby because there's a baby living in my house because there's an adorable she's very baby. cute and she does sleep it's just you know yeah my mother always said that they that god made babies cute so that we don't kill them <laughs> Because they make us crazy. <laughs> With their big eyes. With their giant eyes and their chubby cheeks yeah. and their tiny little mouths and their cute noises. It's great. Yeah. 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 Eleanor's a little a little angel baby. Yes. But, uh, I'm not entirely sure that I wrote my whole episode. So we'll find out. <laughs> we'll just We're gonna get three fourths of the way through and you're gonna be, like, be like and that's there's it, no apparently. conclusion. <laughs> there's no conclusion to this topic. And also here's there's only four questions to my quiz. <laughs> I hope you enjoy. Well, you know what? The backup for that is if you just suddenly run out of material, we will work together to create a hypothesis of how things will wrap up. So I like that idea. It's like an improvisation thing, you know? Yeah, you know. You know things I'm good at. <laughs> Making stuff up as you go along. I'm yeah. the person that has like a full full blown script. I mean, you guys can tell because I read. I read quickly and I talk fast, but I also have an entire script for this episode yes. written in front of me. So uh, I'm a little, I'm a little more by the book. It seems it's okay. That's all right. That's what makes this podcast so incredibly successful. We have <laughs> tens of listeners yes. who adore and Easily. hang on our every word. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we're fine. You're fine. But I don't know what your to- po- uh, your topic is. I'm sure you told me at some point, and then I completely forgot. So this is a surprise it's to me. It's more fun that way when it we is. get to recording and mm-hmm. we and the other person springs the topic back on the other person. Yeah. Um. Yes. So I'm just gonna. I'll just get right into it. The Please. title of this episode, Lauren, is a third-rate burglary attempt. This episode is all about Watergate. I am so excited for this. (laughs) I am so excited. And you know what? This is why you decided to pour us a glass of wine. Yeah, mostly to keep you entertained because (laughs) honest to God, this is a lot of old white men doing a lot of crap. Yeah. Well, cheers to that, I guess. Here we go. Sip, sip. Mm. All right, everybody. Lay it on me. Buckle up. The Watergate scandal was... A political scandal in the U.S. involving the administration of U.S. President Richard Nixon from 1972 to 1974, leading to Nixon's resignation. So, okay, picture it. Mm -hmm. 1972. Mm, Republican President Richard Milhouse Nixon is running for re-election. The United States is still embroiled in the Vietnam War. The country deeply divided. Mm -hmm. A forceful presidential campaign seemed essential to the president and some of his key advisors. Hmm. All right, Act One. Ooh, ooh, it's oh, like a yes. play. Ooh. Ooh. Act One, the Watergate Complex. Um, here's our key players here. Okay. We have Richard Nixon, who is the president of the United States, and he is also the Republican nominee for the 1972 election. Tricky Dick. Tricky Dick. Exactly. Um, we, we also do have George McGovern, who is the Democratic nominee for the 1972 election, although he barely shows up in this story. You just yeah. have to know that he's the he's the Democratic nominee. There's H.R. Haldeman. He is the White House chief of staff. And you have John Ehrlichman, who is the counsel and assistant to the president for domestic affairs. We also have the committee to reelect the president. Do you do you know what this committee is often referred to as uh is this like it's like the power four or the, uh, the committee to reelect the president it is officially abbreviated the crp but it is often abbreviated as c-r-e-e-p or creep creep ah so that's good. you might I like that. see references to that throughout this um and creep is i mean yeah it works in this in this in case this situation but, mm-hmm. but it is officially abbreviated crp the committee to reelect the president so in that some of the key figures are john mitchell who is 
at this point, the Attorney General of the United States, and then he becomes the CRP campaign director. There's Jeb Stuart Magruder, who is a business executive and the acting chairman of the CRP. Um, and then a couple of names you might actually be familiar with. G. Gordon Liddy. Mm. Um, he's a former FBI agent and a CRP employee. And there's also E. Howard Hunt, who is a former CIA agent and CRP employee. All right. Here's the setting. The Watergate Complex. Okay. Built between 1963 and 1971, the Watergate was considered one of Washington, D.C.'s most desirable living spaces. It was popular with members of Congress and political appointees of the executive branch. The Watergate Complex is actually a group of six buildings in the Foggy Bottom neighborhood of Washington, D.C. And in 1972, the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee was then located on the sixth floor of the Watergate office building. So the Watergate Complex, it was intended to be a city within a city, so it was supposed to have so many amenities that residents wouldn't ever need to leave, you know. Um, so they were supposed to have like a post office and a restaurant and a, gym. a concierge. Oh, oh they sure. They have gyms in the 70s, Yeah, right? that's true. Everyone smoked like chimneys and died at 48. So, <laughs> <laughs> right? That's why nobody who lived in the 70s is still around. Um, I always assumed it was just like a single building. I didn't realize it was like a it's whole a complex. complex. Interesting. So, yes, there was uh, the Watergate Hotel. There was um, Watergate West and Watergate East, which were like apartment buildings. There's the Watergate Office Building. And there's um, one other Watergate um, apartment building, too. So mm-hmm. it was a big complex. Um, it was actually proposed and built by the Italian architectural firm SGI. Um, And one really interesting, one thing that I found super interesting is the Vatican was actually a major investor in this project. Get out. So because of this, uh, the Vatican was at one point part owner of the Watergate until 1969. That's wild. Yeah, right? How strange. Why did this? I don't. Whatever. The Italians. I mean, come on. So the Watergate's popularity among members of Congress and, again, these high-ranking appointees was very strong. And so many members of the Nixon administration settled there that the D.C. press actually named it the Republican Bastille. Oh, mm, wow. Hmm. Yes. So another group we have to worry about right now are called the White House Plumbers. They are simply sometimes called the Plumbers or the Room 16 Project, they were a covert White House Special Investigations Unit, which was established within a week after the publication of the Pentagon Papers in June 1971. Okay. So the plumber's job was to stop and or respond to the leaking of classified information to the news media. Hmm. Um, And just a quick refresher, the Pentagon Papers, which was officially titled Report of the Office of the Secretary of Defense Vietnam Task Force, was a U.S. Department of Defense history of the United States' political and military involvement in Vietnam from 1945 to 1967. And in 2011, this report was formally declassified and released. Hmm. So some of the former operatives of the White House plumbers branched into illegal activities while still employed at the White House, together with the managers of the Committee to Re-elect the President, Hmm. or CRP. So plumbers who joined the CRP proposed a, a project called Operation Sand Wedge, Sand wedge, not sandwich, said weird. Sand wedge, um, which was a clandestine intelligence gathering operation against the political enemies of the Nixon presidential administration, including proposed surveillance of Nixon's enemies to gather information on their financial status and sexual activities. Oh, boy. It's... It's really wild once you go down this rabbit hole of oh, all of sure. these like ideas that they had. Remember when we talked about Fidel Castro and yes. it's like, how do we kill him? I don't know. Like, mm, let's, let's try shave and- off his beard <laughs> and he'll get so sad that he'll die. Kill himself. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's another one of these series of things like we'll we will film them having sex <laughs> in a room and they'll be so embarrassed that they will quit, leave po- leave they politics. Will quit politics forever. <laughs> Uh Uh, so so anyway operation sand wedge interesting but it was abandoned in favor of another plan called operation gemstone oh that sounds better than sand wedge isn't it so in january 1972 we have g gordon liddy Mm -hmm. who's again he's he is a former fbi agent and he is a member an employee of the crp uh 
G. Gordon Liddy presented a campaign intelligence plan to Jeb Stuart Magruder, John Mitchell, and presidential counsel John Dean. Okay, he's a lawyer for okay. the White House. This plan had involved extensive legal activities against the Democratic Party. Um, so John Mitchell viewed Liddy's proposed plan as unrealistic. But two months later, Mitchell actually went ahead and approved a reduced version of the plan, which included burglarizing the Democratic National Committee's headquarters at the Watergate complex. What could go wrong? Yeah. They wanted to photograph campaign documents and install listening devices and telephones there. So in May 1972, CRP member and former CIA officer James McCord assigned a former FBI agent named Alfred C. Baldwin III to carry out the wiretapping and monitor the telephone conversations afterward. On May 11th, McCord arranged for Baldwin to stay at the Howard Johnson's motel across the street from the Watergate complex, and McCord and his team of burglars prepared for their first Watergate break-in, which would happen on May 28th. Two phones inside the DNC headquarters offices were said to have been wiretapped. Problem was, the wiretaps failed to work properly. Hmm. So while successful with installing the listening devices, the committee agents soon determined that they actually needed repairs, and they plotted a second burglary in order to take care of the situation and to plant a new microphone. Um, what's interesting is, obviously, the National Archives and the presidential libraries have have a significant amount of documentation on all of this. Sure, yeah. Um, Government Exhibit 133 shows chapstick tubes that are outfitted with tiny microphones. And these were actually discovered in E. Howard Hunt's White House office safe later on. So it was possible that these chapstick tubes with microphones inside were among the devices that would be planted here. Which is clearly, you know, it's obvious that a man came up with this idea. (laughs) Because a woman would see a chapstick tube and either go, oh, hey, that's my chapstick, and try to use it. Or they'd be like, who left their gross-ass chapstick here and throw it away? (laughs) Who would just be like, oh, oh, there's just a random chapstick sitting on my desk. Oh, well. It's not mine. I guess I'll leave it there. What? No. There were no women, as far as I know, as members of the committee to reelect the president. So nobody ran this by anyone intelligent. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The big day. Okay. Sometime after midnight on Saturday, June 17th, 1972. Watergate complex security guard Frank Wills noticed tape covering the latches on some of the complex's doors leading from the underground parking garage to the offices. Um, So this allowed the doors to close but stay unlocked Mm -hmm. because there was tape covering the latch. So he removed the tape, thought like, oh, somebody did this earlier today. Oh, well. But he returned a short time later and discovered that somebody had retaped the locks. So at that point, he called the police. And responding to the call was an unmarked car with three plainclothes officers. So there was a lookout for this group across the street, Alfred Baldwin, who carried out some of the original wiretapping. But he got distracted while he was watching TV, and he failed to observe the arrival of the police car in front of the hotel. (laughs) He also failed to see the plainclothes officers investigating the DNC's sixth floor of um, their suite of offices there. And by the time Baldwin actually noticed unusual activity on the sixth floor and radio messaged the five burglars, it was too late. So the police apprehended five men, later identified as Bernard Barker, James McCord, Virgilio Gonzalez, Eugenio Martinez, and Frank Sturgis. They were charged with attempted burglary and attempted interception of telephone and other communications. The Washington Post reported that police found lockpicks and door jimmies, nearly $2,300 in cash, most of it in $100 bills with the serial numbers in sequence, as well as a shortwave receiver that could pick up police calls, 40 rolls of unexposed film, two 35-millimeter cameras, and three pen-sized tear gas guns. Jeez. It was not immediately clear that the burglars were in any way connected to the president, mm-hmm. though suspicions were raised when detectives found copies of the re-election committee's White House phone number among the burglars' belongings. Oh, my God. Just... <laughs> what a bunch of dumbs. They might as well have been like, we're not working for the president! Like, whoops! Oh, I, I mean... mean <laughs> so on august 1st 1972 a $25,000 cashier's check um, which is about $153,000 in today's money was found to have been deposited in the u.s and mexican bank accounts of bernard barker one of the watergate burglars Uh-oh. 
This money and several other checks which had been donated to the CRP were directly used to finance the burglary and wiretapping expenses, including the hardware and supplies. So as a private organization, the CRP followed the normal business practice in allowing only authorized individuals to accept and endorse checks on behalf of the committee, and no financial institution could accept or process a check on their behalf unless an authorized individual had endorsed it. Sure. The checks deposited into Barker's bank account were endorsed by the CRP treasurer, Hugh Sloan, but he'd failed to ensure that the check was deposited only into the account named on the check. When confronted with the potential charge of federal bank fraud, Sloan revealed that the committee deputy director, Jeb Magruder, and finance director, Maurice Stans, had directed him to give the money to G. Gordon Liddy. Oh, jeez. And Liddy, in turn, gave the money to Barker and tried to disguise its origin. And Barker mm-hmm. tried to hide the funds by putting them in accounts outside of the U.S. Jeez. So in August 1972, Nixon gave a speech in which he swore his White House staff was not involved in the break-in. He stated, I can say categorically that no one in the White House staff, no one in this administration presently employed was involved in this very bizarre incident. Hmm. So he's just like, not us. Crazy that five burglars broke into the DNC headquarters and they had our phone number taped to them and then some money showed up in their account. What but a shame. Nobody at nobody that I know here had anything to do with Mm-mm. it. So here we go. Act two, the downfall. Uh oh. So now we meet staff from the Washington Post. That includes reporters Robert Woodward and Carl Bernstein. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have the executive editor of the Post, Benjamin C. Bradley. Um, And of course, the publisher of the Post is Catherine Graham, who was the only female head of any major newspaper at that point in time. Mm -hmm. We have the informant nicknamed Deep Throat. We have Judge John J. Sirica, who's the district judge for the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. And there's also, again, John W. Dean III, who is White House counsel. So this all, so the break-in happened in June mm-hmm. 1972. On September 29th, 1972, the press reported that John Mitchell, while serving as attorney general, controlled a secret Republican fund used to finance intelligence gathering against the Democrats. On October 10th, Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, under executive editor Benjamin C. Bradley, reported that the FBI had determined that the Watergate break-in was part of a massive campaign of political spying and sabotage on behalf of the Nixon re-election committee no matter on november 7th 1972 the president was re-elected in one of the biggest landslides in american political history by that time a growing handful of people including bob woodward and carl bernstein judge john j sirica and members of a senate investigation committee had begun to suspect that there was a larger scheme at hand and at the same time some of the conspirators began to crack under the pressure of the cover-up sure Anonymous whistleblower Deep Throat provided key information to Woodward and Bernstein. All the secret meetings between Woodward and Deep Throat took place at an underground parking garage somewhere in Roslyn. It's the Virginia side of, oh, okay. of D.C. Over a period from June 1972 to January 1973. This person was first introduced to the public in their February 1974 book, All the President's Men. Mm-hmm. And 33 years later, in 2005, the informant was identified as William Mark Felt Sr., who was deputy director of the FBI during that period of the 1970s. I didn't realize he was like, I mean, I thought he worked for the White House, but I didn't realize he was like in the FBI Mm -hmm. and so high up in the FBI. Yes, exactly. Interesting. So a handful of Nixon's aides, including White House counsel John Dean, testified before a grand jury about the president's crimes. They also testified that Nixon had secretly taped every conversation that took place in the Oval Office. Definitely the sign of a uh, secure and mentally healthy (laughs) man. (laughs) Super stable. Yeah. Um, If prosecutors could get those hands on their tapes, they would have proof of the president's guilt. So Nixon struggled to protect the tapes during the summer and fall of 73. His lawyers argued that the president's executive privilege allowed him to keep the tapes to himself. But Judge Sirica, the Senate committee and an independent special prosecutor named Archibald Cox were all determined to obtain them. When Cox issued a subpoena to Nixon asking for copies of taped conversations recorded in the Oval Office, the president refused to comply. So Friday, October 19th, 1973, Nixon offered what was known later as the Stennis Compromise, asking the infamously hard of hearing Senator John C. Stennis of Mississippi to review and summarize the tapes for the special prosecutor's office. So that's like me saying, okay, 
I guess I do have this incriminating evidence, but I'm going to let, uh, I'm going to let my visually impaired friend <laughs> take their glasses off and watch the tapes and then tell you what happened. Oh, I see. Okay. So he tried to, he tried to be like, I trust this guy. Yeah. I trust this guy who has, who has an a ear disability. trumpet. Yeah. Like it's <laughs> specifically catered toward exactly what my evidence is. Yes. Exactly. Hmm, so Archibald cool. Cox refused this compromise that evening, and it was believed that there would be a short rest in the legal proceedings while government offices were closed for the weekend. So we get to the Saturday Night Massacre. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a series of events on the evening of Saturday, October 20th, 1973. So here's the timeline. Okay. President Richard Nixon ordered Attorney General Elliot Richardson to fire Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox. Richardson refused and resigned effective immediately. Nixon then ordered Deputy Attorney General William Ruckelshaus to fire Cox, and Ruckelshaus also refused and also resigned. Nixon then ordered the third most senior official at the Justice Department, Solicitor General Robert Bork, to fire Cox, and Bork carried out the dismissal as Nixon asked. So the night he was fired, Cox's deputy prosecutor and press aides held an impassioned news briefing and read the following statement from him. Quote, whether ours shall continue to be a government of laws and not of men is now for Congress and ultimately the American people to decide. Hmm. On November 14th, 1973, federal district judge Gerhard Gessel ruled firing Cox was illegal, absent a finding of extraordinary impropriety, as specified in the regulation establishing the special prosecutor's office. So Congress was infuriated by what it saw as a gross abuse of presidential power, as were many Americans who sent an unusually large number of telegrams to the White House and Congress in protest. The impeachment process against Richard Nixon began in the U.S. House of Representatives on October 30th, 1973, following the Saturday Night Massacre during the course of the Watergate scandal. Eventually, Nixon agreed to surrender some, but not all, of the tapes. Sure. Early in 1974, the cover-up and efforts to impede the Watergate investigation began to unravel. On March 1st, a grand jury in Washington, D.C. indicted several former aides of Nixon who became known as the Watergate Seven. Those were H.R. Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, John Mitchell, Charles Colson, Gordon Strachan, Robert Mardian, and Kenneth Parkinson for conspiring to hinder the Watergate investigation. And the grand jury secretly named Nixon as an unindicted co-conspirator. Because hmm. can you imagine naming the sitting president <laughs> as a co-conspirator in a massive scandal yeah it's kind of crazy yeah following an april 1974 subpoena from the judiciary committee edited transcripts of 42 taped white house conversations relevant to the watergate cover-up were finally made public by nixon the committee pressed for the audio tapes themselves to be released and Mm. soon after issued subpoenas for additional tapes all of which nixon refused That same month, Nixon also refused to comply with a subpoena from Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski for 64 Watergate-related tapes, and the issue of access to the tapes went to the U.S. Supreme Court. On July 24, 1974, in United States v. Nixon, the court ruled unanimously, 8-0, that claims of executive privilege over the tapes were void. Uh, Then Justice William Rehnquist, who had recently been appointed to the court by Nixon and had served in the Nixon Justice Department as Assistant Attorney General, accused himself from the case Hmm. and the supreme court ordered the president to release the tapes to the special prosecutor oh my gosh on July 27, 1974, the House Judiciary Committee voted 27 to 11 to recommend the first article of impeachment against the president, obstruction of justice. The committee recommended the second article, abuse of power, two days later on July 29th. The next day, on July 30th, the committee recommended the third article, contempt of Congress. On July 30th, Nixon complied with the order and released the subpoena tapes to the public. The tapes revealed several crucial conversations that took place between the president and his counsel, John Dean, um, beginning with March 21st, 1973. In this cover-up, Dean summarized many aspects of the Watergate case and focused on the subsequent cover-up. The burglary team was being paid hush money for their silence, and Dean straight up stated, quote, that's the most troublesome post thing, because Bob is involved in that, John is involved in that. I'm involved in that. Mitchell's involved in that. And that's an obstruction of justice. So that's like <laughs> me being like, I know you record me. And but, you know, I robbed the liquor store. You <laughs> robbed the liquor store. I mean, we did it. Like, what are you? Uh. He, he not only like named all the people involved, but then used the correct terminology <laughs> for what they would get him on. <laughs> like, 
exactly. <laughs> exactly. And Dean also said that E. Howard Hunt was blackmailing the White House, demanding money immediately. And oh Nixon gosh. replied that the money should be paid. On August 5th, 1974, the White House released a previously unknown audio tape from June 23rd, 1972, often referred to as the smoking gun tape. Hmm. It revealed Nixon and Haldeman had conducted a meeting in the Oval Office during which they discussed how to stop the FBI from continuing its investigation of the break-in. After explaining how the money from CRP was traced to the burglars, Haldeman explained to Nixon the cover-up plan. Their guy in the CIA would call the FBI and tell them to stay out of this investigation, basically using the CIA to obstruct the FBI. And Nixon approved the plan. Before the release of this tape, Nixon had denied any involvement in the scandal. He claimed there were no political motivations in his instructions to the CIA and claimed he had no knowledge before March 21st, 1973, of involvement by senior campaign officials like John Mitchell. The contents of this tape persuaded Nixon's own lawyers that the president had lied to the nation, to his closest aides, and to his own lawyers for more than two years. So the tape, which Congressman Barbara Conable referred to as the smoking gun, proved that Nixon had been involved in the cover-up from the beginning. On the night of August 7, 1974, Senators Barry Goldwater and Hugh Scott and Congressman John Rhodes met with Nixon in the Oval Office. So Scott and Rhodes were the Republican leaders in the Senate and House, respectively, and Goldwater joined them as an elder statesman. The three lawmakers told Nixon that his support in Congress had all but disappeared, and Rhodes told Nixon that he would face certain impeachment when the articles came up for vote in the full House. Goldwater and Scott told the president there were enough votes in the Senate to convict him and that no more than 15 senators were willing to vote for acquittal. So that wasn't even half of the votes he needed to stay in office. Yeah, exactly. And in the face of almost certain impeachment by Congress, Nixon resigned in disgrace on August 8th in a nationally televised address from the Oval Office, and he left office the following day. His very short letter of resignation was delivered to Secretary of State Henry Kissinger at 11.53 a.m. on August 9th. So that morning, when his resignation took effect, the president, with Mrs. Nixon and their family, said goodbye to the White House in the East Room, and a helicopter carried them from the White House to Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland. And uh, there's that very famous picture of him leaving the White House mm-hmm. on the helicopter, flashing his, like, V for, you know, his peace sign. I don't know. V for v victory, for peace. peace. Neither uh, one of those make any sense yeah, in this context. But it's a very, but. A very famous mm-hmm. footage there. And at Andrews Air Force Base, he and his family boarded an Air Force plane to El Toro Marine Corps Air Station in California and then were transported to his home in San Clemente, California. With Nixon's resignation, Congress dropped its impeachment proceedings. Uh, Criminal prosecution was still a possibility at the federal and at the state level. Nixon was succeeded by his vice president, Gerald Ford, um, who on September 8th, 1974, issued a full and unconditional pardon of Nixon, immunizing him from prosecution for any crimes he had committed or may have committed or taken part in as president. Hmm. And in a televised broadcast to the nation, Ford explained that he felt the pardon was in the best interest of the country. So I was talking to my dad about this earlier. Sure, yeah. And he said that, like, when Nixon resigned, it was like the most shocking thing oh, yeah. that had ever happened. Like there was definitely that he, he kept using the word firestorm. He kept saying like there was this firestorm a brewing about him being impeached mm-hmm. and about that people were calling, you know, calling for him to be fired and impeached and yeah. that he was going to get prosecuted for all of the stuff. Nobody in a million years thought that this guy would resign. No, no, because he's definitely like all his behavior up until this point like publicly and behind closed doors was basically like, you can't catch me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the gingerbread man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like I'm the president. You can't get me. Like, right. I'm just going to keep denying this. this what are you going to do? Executive privilege. Yeah. Executive privilege. So yeah. And then it apparently also for the people who were mad at, you know, public and yeah. everybody in the, all the politicians who were mad at Nixon about all this. Yeah. The fact that Ford pardon him was like, another like a second oh, yeah. big slap in the face. So Absolutely. it was very clearly like some backdoor dealings mm-hmm. that, you know, Nixon made a deal that if obviously that if that Ford could become president, if he, as long as he got immunity and then he got pardoned for that. Yeah. And that he'd lay low and stay quiet and yep. not make his presidency a shambles exactly. or whatever, or exactly. whatever he said to him. Exactly. Yeah. So again, Ford, Ford said that he thought that pardon was in the best interest of the country. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So some of Nixon's aides obviously were not quite so lucky. So John Mitchell served 19 months for his role in the scandal. Watergate mastermind G. Gordon Liddy. Again, he was a former FBI agent. He knew 
he knew Some better. Yeah. Um, he served four and a half years and then like went on to have this like crazy career. Like he did talk shows. Mm-hmm. He acted in all kinds of things. Yeah. L- like it's super weird. Yeah. He was in like a bunch of B movies or whatever. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I've seen like, like, Mystery Science yeah, Theaters or like movies. that he would just like show up at the Cheers bar or something and they'd be like, <laughs> Gee, Gordon Liddy? Liddy? Yeah. I mean, the man's got to make a dime. I mean, his political <laughs> political career was completely over, but geez. So yeah, Nixon's chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, spent 19 months in prison. John Ehrlichman spent 18 months for attempting to cover up the break-in. And again, Nixon himself never admitted to any criminal wrongdoing, though he did acknowledge using poor judgment. <laughs> Wow, what a concession. So the suffix gate mm-hmm. is now used to embellish a noun or name to suggest the existence of a far-reaching scandal, particularly in politics and government. And the adoption of this suffix gate to ex- suggest the existence of a scandal was promoted by William Sapphire, who was the conservative New York Times columnist and a former Nixon administration speechwriter. Mm-hmm. As early as September 1974, he wrote a Viet Gate, which was a proposed pardon of the Watergate criminals and the Vietnam War draft dodgers at the same time so yeah. we hear we hear this all the time that people just like when ariana grande like licked a donut on camera and like put it back they called it donut gate yeah like it's gotten it's now yeah. means nothing <laughs> like, it means nothing yeah. but you you know you see it all yeah. the time Uh, The Gerald Ford Presidential Library and Museum, they have a really great online exhibit called The Watergate Files, which is a great chronology of the trial and aftermath with images of documents. And the National Archives and Records Administration also has the Watergate Roadmap and records of the Watergate Special Prosecution Force available online, along with countless other related materials. And like quick summary, because of Nixon and Watergate, we have the Presidential Records Act of 1978, which specifically established public ownership of all presidential records and defined the term presidential records. Mm-hmm. So basically anything that is created during the course of a presidency while in office belongs to the country and it will end up in either the federal federal document repositories or a presidential library, which is administered by the National Archives. Yep. So there you have it. Watergate. Amazing. That's great. A good piece of American history that is, uh, we're seeing echoes of it even hmm. today. I th- I think it's interesting because I think we, we kind of know that Watergate was the downfall of Nixon, but mm-hmm. maybe not that it, you know, it took this long for stuff to come out or that, that it basically he was facing impeachment for obstruction of justice. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't, because he hired someone to break into the headquarters. That wasn't why he was getting impeached. No. And I didn't realize it took that long. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it was, I thought it happened a lot quicker, which makes sense because, yeah. you know, the wheels of justice turn slowly yeah. or whatever the term is. But yeah, I didn't realize it was like two years, mm-hmm. two year, two and a half mm-hmm. years, something like that. And yeah. even though the story by Woodward and Bernstein came out in October 72, like it had absolutely no effect on the election in November. Really? Yeah. I had, oh, see, I, my timeline was completely off. That's crazy. Yeah. So, hmm. So our quiz today, which I think I wrote 10 questions for. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. Is on other famous gates. Okay. Question one. The Brandenburg Gate is an 18th century neoclassical monument built on the site of a former city gate on the orders of Prussian King Frederick William II. In what present day city is this landmark located? Question two. Henry Louis Gates Jr. has hosted a program on PBS since 2012 in which celebrities are presented with a book of life created with information researched by professional genealogists. What is the name of that program, which contains a nod to a famous 1977 miniseries? Question three. The Heaven's Gate religious cult, which committed mass suicide in March 1997, believed an alien spacecraft was trailing behind what recently discovered comet that came from the middle of nowhere. Question four. I'm loving it. The tallest man-made monument in the Western Hemisphere was designed by Finnish-American architect Eero Saarinen in 1947 and was given what name based on its location's role as one to the West? Question 5. Tourists in London often visit Buckingham Palace to watch the changing of the Queen's Guard at the palace gates. 
Which two animals are depicted on the United Kingdom's royal coat of arms, mounted prominently on these palace gates? Question six. Beginning in August 2014, a sustained online harassment campaign targeted several women in the video game industry, notably developer Zoe Quinn. If you ask 4chan, it was about ethics and journalism, but to the rest of the world, it was obviously about sexism and misogyny. What neologism is used as a blanket term for the controversy, as well as for the harassment campaign and actions of those participating in it? Question seven. The Gates of Hell, a nearly 20-foot tall piece by French sculptor Auguste Rodin, contains 180 figures depicting his interpretation of which epic narrative poem? Question 8. In 1994, Microsoft founder Bill Gates purchased the Codex Leicester at an auction for more than $30 million. After acquiring the manuscript, Gates had its pages scanned. They looked backwards, but that was on purpose, and later distributed some of them as a screensaver and wallpaper files included in a specific theme for Windows Desktop. Who was the original creator of this codex, which dates to about 1510? Question 9. Connecting the San Francisco Bay to the Pacific Ocean is what three-mile-long street? Though you may not be familiar with the body of water, you certainly know the name of the structure which spans it. And question 10. A certain sci-fi franchise, which began in 1994, is based on the idea of an alien wormhole that enables nearly instantaneous travel across the cosmos. Along with multiple films, there have been television series and animated series and numerous novels and comic books, all under what franchise name? give you about a minute to think about it and then we'll be back with your answers Okay. So so if I didn't say gate in the question, it's probably in the answer. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. <laughs> totally with you. I got you on this. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Let's try it. I'll Let's try, try it. it. I'll try it. You'll try it. <laughs> Please. Question one. The Brandenburg Gate is an 18th century neoclassical monument built on the site of a former city gate on the orders of Prussian King Frederick William II. In what present-day city is this landmark located? Lord, I'm almost positive this was like a learnedly question last season, and I didn't get it right that either. (laughs) Is it, is it Vienna? Do you know, can, do you know any famous events that took place in front of the Brandenburg Gate? Oh, uh, mm, probably. Probably do. I probably, probably. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Berlin? It is Berlin. Oh, yes. Woohoo! Yay! Yeah, because of um, uh, the tearing down the wall. Yeah, yeah. the tearing down the wall. <laughs> and, uh, yep. <laughs> Thank you for John, humoring John me. John F. Kennedy's yes. speech. Yep, I am a yep, jelly I'm a donut. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. All right. So the Brandenburg Gate. I was always kind of like confused because it's this big like neoclassical thing in the middle of Germany. Sure. Know, for yeah. us, for all intents and purposes. So this gate consists of 12 Doric columns. There are six on each side. It forms five passageways. And citizens were originally only allowed to use the outermost two of on course. each side to pass mm-hmm. through. Its design is based on the Propylaea, which was the gateway to the Acropolis in Athens, Greece. And atop the gate is a quadriga, which is a chariot drawn by four horses, driven by the Roman goddess Victory. Of course. So it's 
very, very ornate, mm-hmm. very neoclassical. And it's in Berlin. It's in Berlin. Great. And you know what? Now it's the second time. I will remember you that. You will remember that. I will try. We've also, that. yeah, we talked about, we had a Berlin Wall episode. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what more do you need? <laughs> Question two. Henry Louis Gates Jr. has hosted a program on PBS since 2012 in which celebrities are presented with a book of life created with information researched by professional genealogists. What is the name of that program, which contains a nod to a famous 1977 miniseries? Is this Who Do You Think You Are? not who no it's not because i know there's two genealogy tv shows mm-hmm. the, and the henry Louis gates one is oh shoot what is the name of that program which contains a nod to a famous 1977 miniseries hmm uh i am kunta kinte that's a 77 miniseries right roots roots it's called roots know your roots find your roots here's your roots Check out these roots. <laughs> Cover up my roots. <laughs> Covering up my roots. Um, yeah. Know your roots? No. Uh, what is it? Something you're, about you're roots. Very close. It's your. Here's your roots with Henry Louis Gates. <laughs> you are very close. I know. It's called finding finding your roots, your roots. with Henry Louis Gates. Shoot. So there have been six seasons so far. Um, the tail end of season six is actually slated to begin airing next month in October 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, so Gates has published extensively on appreciating African-American literature as part of the Western canon. And he serves as the Alphonse Fletcher University professor and director of the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Various, very esteemed scholar. Oh, yeah. Question three. The Heaven's Gate religious cult, which committed mass suicide in March 1997, believed an alien spacecraft was trailing behind what recently discovered comet that came from the middle of nowhere? Is this Hale-Bopp? It is Hale-Bopp. Yeah. Uh, The comet was discovered independently on July 23rd, 1995 by two observers, Alan Hale and Thomas Bopp, both in the United States. So they weren't working together. It was just like two guys looked up in the sky at the same time and they were like, that's new. (laughs) Uh, so this they weren't com- together. <laughs> they, were- <laughs> they were like, Bop, come here. What's up, Hale? Look at that. What? <laughs> Thomas Bop is a great name. That's a- Old Tommy Bop, they called him. <laughs> um, so the Hale Bop comet was visible to the naked eye for a record 18 months, which was actually twice as long as the Great Comet of 1811, which was the previous record holder. And accordingly, Hale Bop was dubbed the Great Comet of 1997. Sure. For more on Heaven's Gate, check out episode 10. You're in a cult. Call your dad. Um, Also, I thought this was fun. I snuck it into the question. Um, I said it came from the middle of nowhere. The middle of nowhere is the title of Hanson's 1997 debut studio album, which included the song. Yes. Uh, I was wondering what that reference was. Because, I mean, I knew that because I've seen like two things on the Heaven's Gate called because it's very interesting. But uh, that's very good. You really like, you really twisted it in there. Good job. Question four. I'm loving it. The tallest man-made monument in the Western Hemisphere was designed by Finnish-American architect Eero Saarinen in 1947 and given what name based on its location's role as one to the West? Is that the St. Louis Arch? What is that called? Oh, the, ooh, uh, the Arch, the Arc de Triomphe. Nope, that's in France. Um, the arch, the McDonald's arch, um, the, remember what the name, remember the clue. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I got the McDonald's one, (laughs) one to the West. Is that the, is that the clue? (laughs) Uh, what's the theme of the quiz? Oh, uh, the gateway to the West. (laughs) Thanks. And it's, and it's called the, I thought it was called the gateway to the West. And what's the monument called? The Gate Arch? I don't know. What is it? Just tell me. Just tell me. It's called the Gateway Arch. Oh, it's called the Gateway Arch. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, I was close. Why don't you just tell me what the answer is? Why don't you just tell me what it is? I was so close on all of it. I used all those words. Isn't that similar to saying the right answer? I would say. (laughs) 
<laughs> it is in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. It's called the Gateway Arch because St. Louis was called the Gateway to the West. Okay. The Gateway Arch is 630 feet tall, clad in stainless steel, and was built as a monument to the westward expansion of the United States. Nice. And tallest man-made monument in the Western Hemisphere. Interesting. Yeah. Question five. Tourists in London often visit Buckingham Palace to watch the changing of the Queen's Guard at the palace gates. Which two animals are depicted on the United Kingdom's royal coat of arms mounted prominently on these palace gates? Is it the lion and the unicorn? You are correct. Hooray. The lion is for England and the unicorn is for Scotland. Uh, The Queen's Guard is the name given to the contingent of infantry responsible for guarding Buckingham Palace and St. James's Palace, including Clarence House in London. Uh, Changing the guard, also known as guard mounting, takes place outside Buckingham Palace on certain days from 1045 a.m. and lasts around 45 minutes. Um... In October 2019, it was in the news because a builder's lorry accidentally knocked the unicorn off the main gate. Oh, no. And it was just like <laughs> on the ground. <laughs> it was a big, big old hole in the gate. Aww. And they were like, we're sorry. I was there in October 2019. I didn't see <gasps> that. Was it me? Did, <laughs> Did I do you it? you not? <laughs> I thought I was, I have some hours missing in my memory. I just hopped in a lorry and knocked the unicorn down. Bam. Bam. Let's check the tapes. (laughs) All right. Question six. Beginning in August 2014, a sustained online harassment campaign targeted several women in the video game industry, notably developer Zoe Quinn. If you ask 4chan, it was about ethics and journalism. But to the rest of the world, it was obviously about sexism and misogyny. What neologism is used as a blanket term for the controversy, as well as for the harassment campaign and actions of those participating in it. Uh, That was Gamergate. Yes, Mm -hmm. it was Gamergate. So many supporters of Gamergate oppose what they view as the increasing influence of feminism on video game culture. Oh, what a shame. Um, After Zoe Quinn's ex-boyfriend wrote a disparaging blog post about her, hashtag Gamergate users falsely accused Quinn of an unethical relationship with journalist Nathan Grayson. Harassment campaigns against Quinn and others included doxing, threats of rape, and other terrible threats yeah a truly online. measured and appropriate response to that kind of thing ridiculous totally normal yeah stuff, totally right? normal stuff question seven the gates of hell a nearly 20 foot tall piece by french sculptor auguste rodin contains 180 figures depicting his interpretation of which epic narrative poem uh, that is the Divine Comedy. You are correct. Yeah. This, uh, the Gates of Hell, specifically the first section, uh, Inferno. Mm. For more on this, check out episode 47, Burn Baby Burn, Dante's Inferno. I'm very proud of it. It's, it's very, very good. good. <laughs> um, so the figures in the sculpture range from 15 centimeters high, that's about six inches, up to more than a meter, that's about three feet. Several of Rodin's well-known separate sculptures, including The Thinker and The Kiss, were originally created as part of this work. Question eight. In 1994, Microsoft founder Bill Gates purchased the Codex Leicester at an auction for more than $30 million. After acquiring the manuscript, Gates had its pages scanned. They looked backwards, but that was on purpose, and later distributed some of them as screensaver and wallpaper files included in a specific theme for Windows desktop. Who was the original creator of this codex, which dates to about 1510? Okay, so a Renaissance creator of a codex da vinci no yes yes is yeah. it da vinci i'll stop you yeah. okay yeah just <laughs> leonardo da vinci yay, yay. <laughs> um so this was really a notebook on leonardo's observations and theories on astronomy the properties of water fossils and more it was written in italian in his mirror writing with lots of supporting drawings and diagrams um i mean i very clearly remember this windows like yeah, like see, screensaver. I don't remember it at all. Bad. Yeah, yeah. I do. I do not remember this. Maybe I didn't have the correct package or something. Unclear. No, but there was like a whole like le- there was a whole like Leonardo da Vinci like pages on the screen and yeah. like the bicycle thing with the thing. Oh no, I never writing. got it. Anyway, I mean, I believe you. Yeah. It's obviously real, but yeah. Um. So the Leicester Codex uh, was first owned by Thomas Coke the first Earl of Leicester from 1719 to 1759. And then the Leicester estate from 1759 to 1980. And mm. then like another big, you know, rich guy had it. And sure. then Bill Gates bought it. And then like, basically it was like, here world, 
you guys Here can take a go. look at it too. Um, <laughs> and I did a little bit of on more on Bill Gates in in the Microsoft Corporation in the quiz portion of episode one seventeen, the defenestrations of prod. Mm-hmm. So you can check that out. Yeah, if you definitely, want. it's very good. Question nine: Connecting the San Francisco Bay to the Pacific Ocean is what three mile long strait? Though you may not be familiar with the body of water, you certainly know the name of the structure which spans it. I mean, that's the Golden Gate Bridge. So is it the Golden Gate Strait? Yes! It's really called the Golden yes! Gate Strait? Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> yep. The body of water got its name in 1846, um, even before the discovery of Golden California. And in his memoirs, John C. Fremont wrote, to this gate, I gave the name of... Oh, man, another Greek thing. <laughs> I gave the name of Chrysopoli or Ooh, Golden good. Gate for the same reasons that har- the harbor of Byzantium was called Chrysoceros or Golden Horn. You might remember Fremont as a U.S. senator from California who in 1856 was the first Republican nominee for president. Um, the Golden Gate Bridge was designed in 1917 and construction was completed in 1937. Farmer's Travel Guide describes the Golden Gate Bridge as possibly the most beautiful and certainly the most photographed bridge in the world. And at the time of its opening in 1937, it was both the longest and tallest suspension bridge in the world. Mm. And finally, question 10. A certain sci-fi franchise, which began in 1994, is based on the idea of an alien wormhole that enables nearly instantaneous travel across the cosmos. Along with multiple films, there have been television series and animated series and numerous novels and comic books, all under what franchise name? I'm assuming this is Stargate? Yes! Stargate. (laughs) Stargate. I didn't realize there were so many... I mean, I guess I'm not that surprised by it, but that there were so many like media like things yeah. associated with it. Oh, yeah. It's big. Huge. Uh, Stargate production center on the premise of a Stargate, which is a ring shaped portal that enables rapid transportation to other Stargates located cosmic distances away. And the story begins when one such device is discovered on Earth. Yes. I think Steve and I watched that. You probably did. Yeah, I was not, I don't remember being that super impressed by it. I mean, Dwayne The Rock Johnson wasn't in it, so I was like, snore. Uh, (laughs) Well, that was great, Julia. You did a great job. Thanks, Jewel. That was a great quiz and an excellent topic. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was very good. Um, Thanks so much for listening, you guys. Uh, We hope that you are all doing well. Um, I know, okay, so I'm one of those people that when I hear people on TV or like, especially we listen to a lot of podcasts Mm -hmm. ourselves. So when we hear people on podcasts be like, well, everything sucks or nothing matters anymore or the world is on fire or whatever. And I know that those are meant to be like ironic and like, haha, I'm making a joke, but it does not feel great when everyone's like, haha, nothing matters. The world is on fire. So I want to be somebody (laughs) to you to say, I know everything is not great right now. And I know that there's a lot going on that we don't have a lot of control over, but um, we are going to get through this. You are going to get through this. And the moral arc of the universe bends toward progress and justice. And so I feel like, please, you know, wash your hands, stay safe. Please vote in November if you are in the States. <laughs> and uh, we are here for you if you need us. Or, you know, talk to your mother or something. I mean, we're not, you listen to we're us not every licensed. day. No, we're not licensed. Like, we cannot give you advice legally. But, you know... You can listen to us every Tuesday and take with that what you will. We hope that you are a, we are a small light in your life right now. <laughs> and that we're useful in some way. That we're useful in some that's way. That's really all we could hope for. Honestly. And that's all we could really do. And every little bit helps. So thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we will catch you next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye.